Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. Hey folks, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council Podcast. This is your... Well, I guess I'm not really a graduate student anymore, but that's a, a topic for another time, but it just have it caught me there. Uh, this is your co-host, Brandon Saxton. And your other co-host, Katie Gordon. How Congratulations to Brandon. Oh, well. He's referencing the fact that he graduated. I did, yes. Thank you very much. Yeah, and just two years or longer of doing this show and saying graduate student co-host, I got caught off guard there because this is our first episode since graduation. So, But anyway, how are you doing, Katie? I'm doing well. How are you doing today? I'm doing really good. And as always, I'm excited to get back behind the mic, get back into the podcast mindset and and have a chance to sit down with, well, digitally sit down with another really exciting guest. <laughs> That's right. We're very excited today to have on Michael Sargent, who is an associate professor of psychology. He's a social psychologist who teaches and conducts research on judgment and decision making. We asked him on to talk about his excellent podcast, Tatter, and we're also going to talk about how the American Psychological Association Guidelines for Psychological Practice with Boys and Men apply to the movie Pulp Fiction. How are you doing today, Michael? Uh, I am doing very well, and uh, now that I know that it's okay for me to jump in, I just want to say congratulations, Brandon. Oh, geez, thank you so much. It's it's so appreciated, and... Um... Yeah, it's very exciting, as as you both know, having passed that milestone yourselves. It, it, it feels good, for sure. Thank you so much. All right, so maybe we can just start off by jumping in and uh, and just asking you what um, what what about or what is your journey like or the pathway like that led you getting a PhD in psychology? And maybe you can just tell us about what drew you into that path. And then maybe after that, just a little bit about your current research and your current teaching areas. Sure. So I was an undergraduate at Hendricks College, which is a liberal arts college in Arkansas, where I was born and raised. And uh, although I ended up majoring in psychology, I did not begin that way. I began as a physics major. I was planning to, in all likelihood, become an engineer. Uh, But after a semester of physics, where I did fine in the course, but I just wasn't jazzed about it. And I also did not want to spend my days in a laboratory analyzing data, which of course is ironic because now I spend my days (laughs) in a laboratory analyzing data, but the data are more meaningful for me than I think they would have been had I stayed on that original path. Uh, And I, I shifted paths when I took a Psych 101 course and found it interesting. And I thought that I might pursue a career as a clinical psychologist. That was originally where I was going to uh, cast my lot, as it were. And as I was telling a friend the other day, in part it was because I really wanted the approval of my family. And I knew that there were there, the standard careers that families approved of included 
doctor and lawyer, and I didn't want to go to med school, didn't really want to go to law school, but I thought a clinical psychologist seems enough like a doctor that they'll approve. But I also had historically enjoyed uh, listening to people tell me about their problems and trying to be supportive. I thought that I was was pretty good at that. And so I, I could imagine uh, hanging out the proverbial, uh, or I imagine hanging out the proverbial shingle um, and becoming a clinical psychologist. And then I took a course in social psychology and that all changed. And I saw that social psychologists were helping people, at least in theory, en masse by, through their research, addressing issues of racism, uh, sexism, uh, persuasion, uh, advancing our understanding of how propaganda works. And I thought, this is really cool. And also because I've had a longstanding interest in political processes, I thought that social psychology could be a way to actually do political psychology. It's one of a number of disciplines that feed into the field of political psychology, where people are using psychological theories and methods to address political problems. And since I was a kid, I have been hooked on shows like Crossfire and uh, the old This Week with David Brinkley, but then it became This Week with uh, Sam Donaldson and Cokie Roberts. Now it's George Stephanopoulos. Those Sunday morning talk shows, those roundtables where people were just talking about current events of the day. And if you listen to my podcast, Tata, you can see that I'm doing something like that with the podcast, but through, through my research, I'm also interested in doing work that often intersects with issues that are relevant to political issues or to social issues. And I'm really a bit of a dilettante when it comes to research topics, which is in part why I haven't published as much as some of my colleagues who have been a little more linear than I have. But I've done, I've published work on a variable known as need for cognition, uh, which, are you familiar with need for cognition? Yes, but I think it'd be great to explain it for our listeners who might not be familiar. And also, I'm not deeply familiar. I'm just a little familiar. Sure. So a need for cognition is a variable that describes individual differences in cognitive motivation, how much people enjoy effortful thought and how much people actually engage in effortful thought. And the idea is some people tend to be high in need for cognition. And it's not that they're smarter than the rest of us. It's just that they enjoy thinking really hard solving really difficult cognitive problems more so than people who are low in need for cognition. And so it's, 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 it's like intelligence is to cognitive ability as need for cognition is to cognitive motivation. You, you, we all know people who aren't that bright, but they really enjoy thinking. So they're low in ability, but high in motivation. And then also lots of people who are highly able, but they're intellectually lazy. So low in need for cognition. And in one of my papers from the early 2000s, I documented some evidence that people who are high in need for cognition, at least in my three samples, tended to support less punitive responses to criminal wrongdoing than people low in need for cognition. So as the title of the article said, it's as if less thought equals more punishment. The people who tended in my samples to support the most punitive responses to crime, such as mandatory lifetime sentencing for three-time felons, those people tended to be the less thoughtful members of the sample. And so that's just one example of a number of research projects I've done with students where we're trying to do things that intersect with political issues. Oh, that's so interesting. And you're right. It absolutely does come out in your podcast, Tatter, which I'm a huge 
fan of. So it's oh, really thanks. Cool to have you on. <laughs> you're welcome. It's just so well done. It's clear that you're very thoughtful about who you bring on, how you structure the show, and often. It, sometimes it's just you talking to other people, but sometimes you kind of sit back and let two people talk to each other, which I think is right. interesting, too. Can you tell us what the name Tatter means and what inspired you to start the podcast? So I'll do my best to give a coherent answer. It's a bit challenging because it, it, it grew out of a couple of different threads in my life. One is my interest in politics, but also... I have an interest in storytelling, and actually, as you may or may not know, I founded a live storytelling event in Lewiston, Maine, which is the small city that Bates College, where I teach now, calls home. And I, I founded an event called The Corner, and it's modeled on The Moth, which many people um, may be familiar with. Uh, it's a really well-known live first-person storytelling event. And at the corner, similar to what happens at the moth, people each get about five minutes on a microphone to just stand in front of an audience, mostly of strangers, and tell a true first-person story on the night's theme. And it's been a really compelling event uh, for people here in town. Storytellers have traveled in from out of state to participate. And I've really been about as proud of that event's success as I've been of anything in my life. And my initial interest in launching the podcast, Tatter, was to make it a storytelling podcast. So its its original focus in the first four episodes was not what it has become since. I interviewed local people here in Lewiston-Auburn about their stories. And the name Tatter was meant to refer to really two things. One was this is a working class community. There's actually a lot of poverty here. And there are a lot of ways in which the people I reached out to, I think, in some ways were at the tattered edges of society. Uh, and so great folks, but definitely uh, people whom you wouldn't hear on the news necessarily, not not local uh, public officials or professors or lawyers, but say a burlesque performer uh, or uh, my first guest was actually a local musician who um, has definitely had some rough and tumble experiences in his life. And I wanted to feature the people who you wouldn't hear on mainstream television or radio programs. Uh, and so I sort of invoked this idea of interesting people being at the tattered edges of society, but also at another level, each of us, if we've had experiences that have left us battered and bruised in some ways, some aspects of our personality may feel a little bit tattered. And so I wanted to feature those stories. But there was a shift that happened after the fourth episode where my longstanding interest in politics came through again, and I decided I wanted to change the focus and engage with experts on political issues uh, broadly defined. But I was stuck with the name, and I didn't really want to rebrand. And so now the way that I justify it, and this is admittedly totally post hoc, is mm -hmm. I'm now talking to experts who draw their knowledge from the tattered pages of books and journals and uh, statistical output. So it, it's, it's a bit of a stretch, the name now, but I'm just kind of stuck with the original brand. Well, we can certainly relate, <laughs> relate to that. Our um, Our network 
head likes to tease us about the fact that our show rarely mentions Star Wars anymore. Just in two episodes. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So. Over a hundred now. Yeah. So. But starting all over doesn't make sense. And I, and yeah. I like the rebrand. I think, I think it all ties together. Mm-hmm. That's, Absolutely. I didn't know that you had started a storytelling event, mm-hmm. but that really, I think, shed some light on how your podcast episodes come together, both in terms of pulling in the expertise and the political interests just told in a compelling way. So thank you for sharing that with us. Oh, of course. Thanks for asking. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, maybe for people or, or listeners of, of the non-Star Wars-oriented Jedi Council podcast <laughs> who haven't heard Tatter before, but want to check it out, and I recommend they do, which episodes would you would you recommend them starting with? So I would start with the first four just to get a sense of where it began, but then to really get a flavor for what it's become uh, I would start with episode, I believe it was episode five, which is titled Non-Standard. It's my interview with John Pfaff, uh, P-F-A-F-F. And John Pfaff is a law professor at Fordham University who's written a book that I highly recommend uh, called Locked In, The True Causes of Mass Incarceration and How to Achieve Real Reform. And in a nutshell, in this episode, in the book, if you read it, you will see that he challenges what he characterizes as the standard story, the standard interpretation of the causes of the extremely high levels uh, or high rates of incarceration that we uh, experience here in the U.S. compared to virtually every other country in the industrialized world. Uh, So, for example, uh, what he characterizes as the standard story emphasizes the imprisonment of nonviolent drug offenders. And what we're learning more and more, thanks to such work as his, is that even if you were to free all of the people who are incarcerated for strictly for nonviolent drug offenses, you would barely make a dent in the overall rates of incarceration. Most people who are incarcerated are incarcerated for violent offenses. And so if we're going to actually lower our incarceration rates, we have to think, rethink how we uh, respond to violent offenses as well. And so I learned a lot from that conversation with him. Uh, another episode I'd recommend, actually it's a pair of episodes, and they are two of the most downloaded episodes of Tatter. They're, each, of, each is titled The Humian Stain, Part 1 and Part 2, and they're about the implicit association test, uh, one of the most famous, if not the most famous, uh, measures of implicit cognition or implicit bias in particular. And that episode was an exhausting episode to make because although most of my episodes as people who listen to the uh, podcast will recognize are done as we're doing now in a single conversation. But for that one, I actually had six different conversations with six different experts. And I then had to go back and log all of that raw audio storyboard and assemble it into a coherent single episode or pair of episodes. And I really felt as if I was doing something on a a, sort of on a smaller scale, uh, but something in the spirit of this American life, but without, without a staff. And so it took me months to do that. So if you want to get a sense of what, what my blood, sweat and tears over the course of months can sound like, uh, listen to uh, each of the episodes, each of each part of uh, the Humean stain. And then the last one that I would mention would be, uh, I think this was episode, I forget the number, but uh, it's called A Thinking Debater's Guide to the AR-15. After uh, 
yet another mass shooting had occurred. I wanted to do an episode on the AR-15, but I didn't want to just do another food fight where people are arguing about it. I wanted to do an episode that would inform people's understanding of the history of the weapon, what the weapon is designed for, what it can do. Uh, and in particular, I wanted to do this for people like myself who support stronger restrictions on access to such weapons, but don't use them th themselves, aren't very uh, well informed about them. And if you end up in a debate in that position with a gun enthusiast, you could easily find yourself looking foolish. And so I really wanted to help equip people with more information about what the, the weapon can actually do. Uh, and I got to go, to go to a firing range with a friend of mine and fire one. And so that was kind of cool. It might overlap a bit, but I'm wondering, do you have any episodes that stand out as personal favorites? Um, so I don't want to give short shrift to any guests. Uh, so <laughs> I might, I might give a different answer tomorrow or the day after, but one episode that comes to mind that I'm really proud of is my conversation with Carla Jean Lauder, uh, who writes as the beer babe. She's a beer writer here in Maine. And then J. Nicole Jackson Beckham is a communications professor, but also she is the new, actually it's been about a year now, uh, so not so new, but she's recently appointed uh, diversity ambassador for the Brewers Association. The Brewers Association. And the Brewers Association is the leading uh, industry organization for craft beer. And if you've ever been to a craft beer festival or been to a tap room, chances are you've seen a lot of people who don't look like me. I'm an African-American man and a disproportionate number of people who are producers in the industry are, are white men. And we had a conversation about diversity and inclusion in the world of craft beer uh, titled Open Bar None. And it was a delight to talk to them and then to also just sit back, um, Katie, as you were saying, to sit back and let them bounce ideas off each other regarding their own experiences in the world of craft beer and their aspirations for how craft beer could be even better. That's great. I have not listened to that episode. I think that the implicit bias episodes were the first episodes that I heard of Tatter and how I started listening to your show. And um, I could definitely hear the effort that went into that. Was the Christmas movie episode similarly <laughs> burdensome? <laughs> Uh, that actually wasn't because even okay. though I had a lot of pieces to assemble, each interview there was only about 10 minutes long. So oh, okay. <laughs> at, at, at one point when I was storyboard, storyboarding, I completely covered my coffee table from top to bottom, side to side with post-it notes. Um, but, but no, it, it just took a couple of days to get that put together. Okay. Well, that's a really fun episode too. That we'll, we'll link to all of the episodes that you just mentioned in the show. Notes. Ah, thanks. Yeah, happy to. Before we kind of shift gears a little bit, anything else we should talk about with regard to Tatter? Um, no, that's it for right now. Okay, sounds good. Highly recommend to our listeners that you all check it out. And as we were preparing for this episode, Michael had this fantastic idea to discuss the various approaches to masculinity in the movie Pulp Fiction. In particular, the suggestion was to talk about 
the different forms of masculinity that are represented in light of the controversy over the APA's guidelines for psychological practice with boys and men. So I think we'll link to the guidelines for our listeners in the show notes, but really briefly for folks who maybe aren't familiar or haven't seen it, what the document says is that the purpose is really to articulate guidelines that enhance gender and culture-sensitive psychological practice with boys and men from diverse backgrounds in the United States. Um, These guidelines provide general recommendations for psychologists who seek to increase their awareness, knowledge, and skills in psychological practice with boys and men. So some people viewed the guidelines in a positive way. Other people viewed it as too critical or maybe even pathologizing of traditional masculinity. That's right. So, Michael, what was your overall reaction reading the guidelines? Well, before I get to my reaction reading the guidelines, I just want to say that I was surprised by how forceful some of the objections were that were raised to the guidelines, especially among conservatives, uh, ranging from Tucker Tucker Carlson to even more thoughtful uh, observers than Tucker Carlson, of of which there are many, of course. (laughs) Um, And so I was surprised, but I... I shouldn't have been. We seem to be living in a time where on both the left and the right, people seem to have hair triggers for outrage. And in some cases, as with Carlson, it's a way to make a buck. I mean, it's a part of it's a part of the grift. But I think that for a lot of folks, it wasn't just about making a buck, but people were for uh, with sincerity uh, upset by the guidelines. And, and I, I should have seen that coming, but given my reading of them, I was still uh, surprised because on my reading, I found the guidelines not perfect. Uh, I'm sh- There are shortcomings there, but I found them on balance, uh, potentially useful. Uh, and I, I like to think of them as uh, uh, having a pretty high baby to bath water ratio. And so just, just, just to uh, dig into to one piece, I was, I mean, I see the guidelines as basically saying that there's not just one way to be a man, but rather their masculinity can take multiple forms And given some of the challenges, whether it's in high rates of dying by suicide, high rates of incarceration, high rates of experiencing violence, men in our society face some real challenges and and experience some real costs, arguably, of certain forms of masculinity. And I think that guidelines that encourage clinicians to be sensitive to the fact that manhood can take different forms and to let that inform their practice seems to me to be a self-evident good. But that was clearly not uh, how the guidelines were experienced by a lot of folks. And I think the big problem was because the guidelines critique uh, what uh, they refer to as traditional masculinity uh, ideology. And so 
early in the guidelines, there's this section that uh, refers to, here I'm reading them, uh, says all, here I quote, although there are differences in masculinity ideologies, there is a particular constellation of standards that have held sway over large segments of the population, including anti-femininity, achievement, a shul of the appearance of weakness, so avoidance of the appearance of weakness, and adventure, risk, and violence. And when you read that, I think it can be tempting to see that as suggesting that any time a man displays those characteristics, it's necessarily bad. But I think it's worth backing up to a sentence just prior to that where they, ref where they define masculinity ideology. And they say that masculinity ideology is a set of descriptive, prescriptive, and proscriptive of cognitions about boys and men. And I, I see what they're, that what they're saying there is that it's when an ideology says this is the only way to be a man that problems can arise, when it proscribes, prohibits other approaches to masculinity apart from those four characteristics of anti-femininity, achievement, a shul of weakness, and adventure, risk, and violence. That, that's too limiting uh, a conception of manhood when there are lots of other ways of being a man. So, for example, a Latino transgender man may define his manhood very differently from that, and that's okay. And it's important for therapists not to, in working with him, assume that he is going to subscribe to though that, that traditional masculinity or ideology or that he needs to. And so for me, the idea, even though I've grown up living by, or at least trying to live by many of the dictates of traditional masculinity ideology, I think it's a good thing that the APA is encouraging uh, clinicians to be more expansive in how they think about manhood. I, I really appreciate your thoughts and the way that you spelled that out. Brandon and I have talked about this a bit, and I think my interpretation was very similar to yours because, as as Brandon was saying, it was clearly written by psychologists and clinicians. And there are clinicians who pointed out, like you said, it's not that it's a perfect document by any means, but they have a lot of conditions and context and ways that things could be different. And it, I think you're right. The main theme does seem to be it's not one size fits all. And in a way, to me, it seems almost the opposite of some of the ways that I've heard it interpreted, which is it seems to say don't pathologize people who don't present within certain specific ways. And it right. doesn't pathologize adventure. It's just saying that if that's not the person's way of being, then that doesn't then that's okay, but it also might, there might be some stress for them because it, it might be um, fly in the face of what's been expected of them. At least exactly. that's how I interpreted it. What about you, Brandon? What were your reactions? Yeah, exact same way. I know just before we started recording, I was reflecting a little bit about some of the conversation and feedback and especially thinking about or considering some of the critical response and reactions. And I also, at the time and in, in reflecting on it afterwards, found myself a little bit confused or not really understanding, um, certainly with qualifying like you both have done, that it's not perfect, but not really understanding some of the critical arguments. And it got me thinking a little bit of how or whether people, certain people maybe, were actually even reading them, or if it was just using kind of a headline or a talking point as a way 
I don't know, in kind of a defensive reaction that, oh, you know, masculinity is being pathologized now instead of actually reading it and trying to interpret the, you know, the underlying message of the guidelines. That's what I found myself wondering about. You know, now that you say that, wasn't there a New York Times headline that used toxic masculinity or something? And that is definitely, like you were saying, Michael, a phrase that gets people, um, triggers people. I think, well, I don't, maybe that's not the right word, because I know that's sometimes used in a way to make fun of people. Um, let's say it um, inspires certain reactions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think that Right, the headline for the New York Times was, it wasn't toxic, but it said traditional masculinity can hurt boys, says new APA guidelines. And if you're reading that, I can certainly, and just that, I could certainly see why I, I would be suspicious or skeptical or maybe even offended. But um, there's broader context within it. But uh, what do you think about that, Michael? Well, I, I, I saw cr- critics suggesting that the APA was attacking men. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, is only true if you assume that manhood is synonymous in all cases with the dictates of traditional masculinity ideology. And what the guidelines are arguing for, which I find compelling, is the idea that that's, that that's not the case, that there are a variety of ways that a man can be a man. And the guidelines are pointing to some of the costs associated with some of the aspects of traditional masculinity, but that doesn't mean that they're critiquing all men. They're critiquing an ideology that says this is the only way to be a man. And I think that that is a a worthwhile critique, even though if we uh, continue exploring this, uh, we can probably point to some of the benefits of traditional masculinity ideology, but it's, it, it, you can't only focus on those benefits. You have to keep in mind some of the costs. Yeah, I think that that balance is key because certainly if it was saying, for example, another aspect of the guidelines talks about how emotional expression, if that's not, has not traditionally been accepted, that might interfere with some men seeking the help that they need or that that might be a piece of contributing to those higher suicide rates. And so I could see if you interpret that as men should all be emotionally expressive and it's not okay to be less emotionally expressive, then that just adds to the problem. But I did interpret the way you said, which is there's a range of things and let's focus on what some specific obstacles might be, but understanding it through a cultural lens. So for example, if a therapist is working with someone who is having a tough time talking about their problems, rather than interpreting it as the person being defensive or resistant or whatever it might be or non-insightful consider that perhaps the cultural way that they grew up is influencing the way they think about things and that the therapist in order to deliver a culturally sensitive and effective therapy needs to be aware of that and tailor their approach in light of those aspects at least that's the way I interpreted it. I don't know if you ever listened to the Very Bad Wizards podcast but I listened to David Pizarro and Tamler Summers there, and they, in one of their episodes, discussed these guidelines. And one of their critiques, which I found thoughtful and plausible, was that the guidelines adopt 
a strong version of a blank slate interpretation of human psychology where they they treat masculinity or uh, gender identity more generally as entirely socially constructed as if there's no genetic component at all. And I like Pizarro and, and, and Summers, if I recall them correctly, I, I think that is an overstatement, but I'm not sure how much it matters. I mean, e even if the tendency to subscribe to traditional masculinity ideology has a genetic component, that doesn't mean that it is not changeable and it doesn't deny the, or refute the fact that there are still costs associated with it. Uh, my, my risk of heart disease or my risk of, of cancer that they have genetic components as well, but we wouldn't deny that I should still take steps to uh, to reduce my risk as much as I can control it because there are costs associated with it. And and to be clear, lest I'm misquoted, I'm not saying that traditional masculinity is a cancer or it, it, it's analogous to cancer, but things that have a biological component don't, as a result, somehow become strictly uh, rigid or or, or cost-free. Uh, and so I, I think that one of the imperfections of the document may be that it underestimates the genetic component of traditional masculinity ideology, but I don't think that that matters. That's a really interesting point because I think that there have been some representations of masculinity, certainly in popular press, but elsewhere that, that this is all kind of sociocultural and it denies the biological influences. And I find those to be, I, I guess I bristle at those too. I, I don't, I don't find those to be accurate. And so if reading in reading this, you're reading it, like you said, as a blank slate situation, rather than saying, you know, they're, like most things, it's a biological, psychological, and social model where we have these different types of factors interacting together. I could understand reacting, though, in a way that says, you know, if you're not acknowledging the biological factors, then that kind of takes away the scientific credibility of the document altogether. I have listened to Very Bad Wizards, but not that episode, but I'm going to listen to it because it sounds really interesting and thoughtful, and I think it's important to understand where the objections are coming from. And in that one, I'm certainly sympathetic to that point of view. Yeah. I'm puzzling over this a bit here and thinking even mm. if you're thinking about these as guidelines for, for clinical work or clinical approaches, how much does that etiology component matter so much when you're in a therapy room, you know, and mm -hmm. you need to conceptualize this person in front of you differently because of the way that they're potentially responding. It doesn't matter so much if it's genetic or if it's more sociocultural or if it's just some combination of the two. I, I understand the critique. I'm just wondering about that piece too with the, the purpose of the guidelines as well. I don't know. Right, and that's consistent with what Michael said. Oh, right? exactly. Yeah, that, mm -hmm. um, that if you're identifying with an individual what might be contributing um, both to resilience and positivity and strength, but also what might be increasing risk, mm -hmm. right? That, that this is kind of getting at looking at this in a more, well, a more gender sensitive therapy mm -hmm. that they're talking about, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like on, on 
page six of the guidelines uh, under the first guideline in the application section. And by the way, I I like really well-structured documents, or at least sensibly structured documents. And there's something just sort of orderly uh, about this one where we have these 10 guidelines and for each one there's a rationale for the guideline and then the application. Uh, I, I was in the marching band growing up. I, I like order. <laughs> I, li- I like structure. Uh, so, But in the application section, they say, and here I quote, psychologists are encouraged to expand their knowledge about diverse masculinities and to help boys and men and those who have contact with them, such as parents, teachers, coaches, religious leaders, and other community figures, become aware of how masculinity is defined in the context of their life circumstances Psychologists aspire to help boys and men over their lifetimes navigate restrictive definitions of masculinity and create their own concepts of what it means to be a ma- to, to be male. So I don't see how the truth value of that changes as a function of the genetic component. Mm-hmm. Whether that's 100% or 0%, it seems like it would be a good thing for psychologists to do those things to become aware of how masculinity is defined in the context of the life of the life circumstances of that boy or man who is presenting uh, himself uh, in the therapeutic context. You want to, you, you want to do that no matter what the degree of social contextual or biological causation is. That's right. It's about helping people to find their authentic selves in the in their environment and do what's adaptive in their environment with flexibility about what it means for them. And so it actually seems almost like the opposite of some responses I read, which were suggesting there was a prescription that people should be less masculine or something like that, because it did seem like now I don't, maybe not in full articles, but in some people's responses, the idea that it was pathologizing traditional masculinity and instead, that seems like the opposite, which is saying that, kind of back to the first point that Michael made, it's actually saying traditional masculinity, that if that fits for that person is working well, then that's great. The point is just to find that there is there are just different pathways and, and find what fits and works for that person. I agree. Okay. Well, thank you for your insight into that and your thoughts about that. I think that, well, it's it's tricky, and this is one of the things that I like about your podcast is bringing in different points of views and, and trying, rather than just saying one side is right and one side is wrong, I, I think that in your, um, actually in your video on your Patreon, you talk about how sometimes people have a megaphone and have to say certain things in a way that might be... Uh, that calls attention to an issue, but your goal is to sit down and have people talk more of in a measured way and kind of see the the how the other person is seeing things, that that allows us to have a deeper understanding and a more complex understanding of a document that is flawed and far from perfect, but that doesn't mean the whole thing is terrible, like mm-hmm. you said. If that summary of your podcast is fair. I think that is uh, at at its best. Yes, that's what I aspire to. (laughs) Okay. Well, aspirations don't always work out. We know this as (laughs) podcasters, but I I certainly see that through the final products. Um, So, so, so so I just want to jump in. I I know we're I know we're going to talk about pulp pulp fiction soon, but I'm just curious. um, Has either of you read uh, Tamler Summer Tamler Summer's book uh, Why Honor Matters? 
I haven't read that. I have not either. So I just, and I, given that I've referred to very bad wizards and now I'm referring to this book, people are going to think I have some sort of intellectual crush crush on Summers. And maybe at some level I do. I'm okay with that. But uh, I just finished reading his book and I highly recommend it. And uh, I went back to it and thinking about the guidelines because what he's offering in the book, Why, Why Honor Matters, is a qualified defense of honor culture. And he, like uh, the sociologist, I believe it's Peter Berger, uh, draws a distinction between uh, so-called dignity cultures and honor cultures, where in dignity cultures is an emphasis on, among other things, self-discovery, discovering what... To, to, to quote you, Katie, what is one's authentic self? And uh, early in the book, uh, Summers quotes Berger, who says that the distinction between honor and dignity really turns on how they each relate to uh, identity. Uh, and one of the key facets or key aspects of dignity culture is that it sees, quote, uh, institutional roles relating to gender, ethnicity, or family as obstacles rather than pathways to self-discovery. Uh, and he goes on to say, in a dignity framework, your institutions and your roles can conceal one's true self from the individuals themselves. This makes, this makes room for the idea of false consciousness. Whereas by, con by contrast, in honor cultures, where there's much more of an emphasis on roles and responsibility, those roles and obligations and responsibilities, they're not obstacles to self-discovery, but they're actually constitutive of the authentic self. And I, I'm still pondering the relationship, but I think that uh, I, I too read the guidelines as emphasizing the importance of every boy and every man discovering his authentic self. Uh, and I, and I, I would go so far as to say discovering it independent of whatever the local norms might be, say, in their neighborhood, in their county, uh, in their family, uh, for masculinity. But I think in honor cultures of the sort that Summers is, for which he's offering this, uh, this somewhat limited defense, in honor cultures, the idea is my family's definition of manhood isn't necessarily something that I need to overcome in discovering my authentic self, but it's actually, it's a critical component of my, of my real sense of manhood. If I'm, if I'm actually going to be the man that I am meant to be, that has to be informed by my families, my churches, my neighborhoods, uh, conception of manhood. And so I think that how one reads these APA guidelines may be very different depending on the extent to which one endorses the dictates of dignity versus honor culture. Wow, that that's fascinating. And I am really intrigued and want to read that book because as you were talking about identity, there's part of the self and the authentic self in there, but there's also this sense of how it can be connecting 
you to your community more in a right. certain way right versus feeling alienated if you're not meeting a particular standard you can see a different way where by honor you're bound to your community and to your family and and that connectedness is something that of course is as we start off talking about a huge contributor to suicide risk and so very relevant in this context you're saying the connectedness is uh I assume you're saying the connectedness reduces suicide risk, or are you saying that it elevates Yes, it? I should clarify. <laughs> Isolation increases suicide risk. Okay. <laughs> and this, <laughs> thank you for clarifying that. I think it would really, uh, I do not want to send the wrong message here. Yes. <laughs> so connectedness is one of the biggest protective factors for preventing suicide. Um, and so the idea that your identities can be a way to connect to your community, to something perhaps larger than yourself, that I'd be interested to read it in Summer's book in that context. So I'll have to check that out. And he actually does, in a different section from what, from where I was just reading, talk about alienation and the ways in which dignity culture, for all of its benefits, so it is from dignity culture that we get the notion of universal human rights, rights of individuals, but there are downsides, and among the downsides are the, are, are, is the potential for alienation uh, from any sense of community. This is what makes psychology and the world so difficult, is that there is no model that has all of the pros and none of the cons. It seems like there are costs and benefits to each. Yeah, and that, that's why I think that um, why, honor matter, why Honor Matters is a great companion reading to the guidelines because when you read the APA guidelines, I think you, if you can read with, it, with an open mind, you get a sense of some of the risks, some of the downsides of traditional masculinity ideology. But insofar as honor culture, at least among its men, promotes some of those same attributes, such as a willingness to do violence, especially in the face of insult, I think that reading Summer's book can shed light on some of the actual benefits. He even in uh, one chapter explores some of the ways that violence within very limited conditions, such as uh, not having access to guns, uh, that violence can actually, yes, be costly, but it can actually have some benefits. Uh, a willingness to do violence in defending the honor of, say, your family uh, is a way of cultivating and demonstrating courage, loyalty, self-respect, and even, he says, uh, love. And so these virtues uh, uh, can actually be uh, uh, demonstrated through and perhaps even uh, help develop some of uh, uh, th these virtues can be developed uh, in the context of violence, which is, I think is an interesting argument. Yeah, that's that's very true, and we can certainly think of roles in society that are necessary that the person can stare down violence or be willing to risk their lives. And and I think about well, police officers and firefighters and things like that. Um, so that's where I, it's so interesting to think about how. The co again, the costs and benefits, which is maybe an oversimplifying way of saying it. But I, yeah, I like the idea of reading the guidelines and then reading Summer's book to kind of look at 
just how how rich the literature and the conceptualizations are and how that can impact people differently. So we'll link to that in the show notes and I'll, I'll definitely check. You've sold me. I'm going to check it out. I'm very interested. He'd be a great uh, future guest on Jedi Council. I would love to have him on. And actually, speaking of suicide, I'll briefly mention they did an outstanding episode on suicide with uh, yeah. Matt Knock. Wasn't yeah. that great? Yeah, I heard so it. Well yeah. Done. No, I mean, I, it, it, the, if, the one thing that I recall taking away was uh, the importance of uh, using the phrase die by suicide rather than commit suicide. I noticed that you said that, and I and I um, appreciate when I hear that because it does seem to make a difference to people who have been affected by suicide. Mm-hmm. And that's right, Matt uh, Nock kindly kind of pointed that out, and then they switched their phrasing throughout. Yeah. Yep. So to summarize, masculinity is complex. <laughs> it's the take home, I guess. There no. are pros and cons no. to the document itself, and uh, but this is a good this is a good start. And if any of our listeners have further comments or further reading mm-hmm. suggestions, please send them our way because I'm, I'm definitely interested. This is this is going to be an issue that people are going to continue oh, yeah. to have dialogue about for a while. I think it's really important and that we do this right. And as clinicians like Brandon and I are to consider these issues when we're doing our work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, should we shift gears a little bit and talk about Pulp Fiction and the different yeah. ways that masculinity is presented in that film? Such a fantastic idea, Michael. Can't thank you enough for that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm delighted to have a chance to talk with you about it. And it gave me an opportunity to watch the film again last night. <laughs> I, I was telling Katie before we started recording, I had a little bit of a weird experience when I rewatched it in that I wasn't sure if I had actually ever seen it before, even though I was convinced before that that I had seen it. But then when I started watching it, I was like, I'm not sure I have watched this. I think I maybe just thought that I had because it's referenced so heavily yeah. in culture that I, I actually am not sure that I did see it even still now. Now I have seen it. But prior to just recently rewatching it, I wasn't sure. That was a weird experience for me <laughs> to have a movie that's like just so ingrained and talked about and referenced in everything. Um, that I had like created a false memory of actually having seen it, I guess. <laughs> sort of a strange experience, but it was a it was a pleasure to to uh, watch it for the first time or rewatch it again. I'm not sure which, yeah. <laughs> depending which is accurate. Yeah. Um, was there? So I I I took a few notes while rewatching it, but I'm wondering if there were certain things that stood out to Michael that made you think about. I mean, I think there are some clear connections, but were there particular points you wanted to make sure to talk about? With regard to the movie. Well, I was just talking about the notion of honor culture. And one thing that stood out to me was that multiple characters seem to strive to embody uh, some of the virtues of honor um, even if they didn't always succeed and others did embody them seemingly effortlessly. So, and, and I know we're talking about masculinity, but I, because honor cultures are often so gendered in the way that they conceive of what is honorable. So not invariably, but often for women in honor cultures, Reputation, honorable reputation depends upon being seen as sexually pure, modest, so covering the body, 
uh, obedient to male relatives. Whereas for men, by contrast, honorable reputation depends upon toughness. Uh, but also, as at least one article I've seen suggested, there are some some other virtues such as honesty, um, integrity, and character. As as this one article, and I can I can it was it's by actually it's by Dove Cohen and Angela K Y Lung, where they distinguish between honor as virtue and honor as virility. Um, I think a lot of our discussions of honor culture focus on this notion of virility, so toughness, willingness to meet insult uh, with physical aggression. Uh, that's just part of honor, they argue. There's also this notion of virtue where it's about integrity and character. It's it's a willingness to uh, to meet threats and debts, they say. Uh, you're, you're willing to, to, to step up and uh, – be a man in response to either of those. And when you look at Pulp Fiction, I see, so for example, John Travolta's character, Vincent Vega, I see him as someone who's clearly striving to be an honorable man. He wants to be respected. There are multiple points in the film where he explicitly demands respect uh, and sometimes looks in, looks a little foolish. So you remember the scene near the end with Harvey Keitel's character, Winston Wolfe? So Winston Wolf is there. Uh, they've got this dead body they've got to dispose of. And uh, Winston Wolf is this problem, this almost magical problem solver uh, who has rushed over in his sports car to help them uh, clean up a car that is totally bloodied uh, so that they can actually uh, get the car and the body off the road and destroyed. And Kaitel's uh, character is in a tuxedo. He's debonair and he's Kurt with them because the clock is ticking and he's giving them orders and Vincent Vega bristles at this and says, could you say please? And uh, eventually uh, Kaitel's character says, if I'm Kurt with you, it's because time is of the essence. Uh, and if self, if self-preservation is an instinct that you, that you possess, you're going to do what I say, but pretty please with sugar on top, clean the fuck, <laughs> clean the fucking car. And so, <laughs> Vincent Vega ends up looking silly um, because he's just been trying to insist upon uh, respect that he's not earned uh, from his elder, as it were. Uh, and so he, he's a character who struck me as someone who wants to be seen as an honorable man, but doesn't always have the stuff it takes to actually to actually meet that standard. Um what what I, I don't know what your what your thoughts are on Vincent Vega before we talk about other characters, but but what, what's your reaction to that suggestion? I think you're right. I mean, I th the thing I was thinking about is when he takes Marcella's wife Mia out, and then yeah. they come back, and he's in the bathroom just kind of really talking to himself. He's like, "You got to be loyal. You're not going to do anything." And he does he does this whole thing. He's like, "This is the plan." Yeah, exactly. This is the strategy. Then he goes out, and of course, it's completely. Um, it doesn't matter. It's all a moot point because she has snorted the heroin thinking it's cocaine and yeah. is overdosing. But I think that that does show his efforts to think through that he's tempted, but he wants to be a certain way um, and respectful. And it's kind of, there's a little foreshadowing of it because I think that there's discussion before and he's like, look, I'm just going to take her to dinner and that's it. But then in fact, they end up dancing and there seems to be some kind of attraction there. And yep. yeah, so yeah, I agree with that take. Me too. I thought that was one of the 
I'd certainly the one of the most salient examples that I caught on to with Vincent and, and Jules kind of wearing their suits and, and they've got the car and they've got this very calm and collected, uh, not reacting emotionally kind of persona through the whole thing. And even in the beginning, they're kind of really pushing people around and they're really in charge. But then as they lose that kind of calmness and, and then they have to call in Mr. Wolf, who's dressed better, has a better car, uh, a fancier car or whatever, and has kind of these alpha male status kind of things and then he starts pushing them around i thought that so much of that like traditional masculinity was very much baked into that and very much that that alpha male kind of uh vibe or or stereotype or characterization of of mr wolf as he kind of comes in and then uh, vincent becomes kind of sub sub to him i guess mm-hmm. in a way mm-hmm. well and that's it's interesting that you also place jules in a subordinate position to wolf and i think you're right Mm -hmm. um but it's striking for me because i had focused on the contrast that i saw between uh vega and jules winfield so samuel uh, l jackson's character where i see jules winfield as effortlessly living up to Mm. the standards of masculine honor and and even to the point where he can just put it on as a, easily as a kind of costume. Mm-hmm. Like, 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 like there's that, there's that iconic line uh, just before they go in to confront Brett and his crew about the uh, briefcase where uh, they walk up to the, well, they, they've been down the hallway discussing the foot massage. Yes. And, and then when it's time uh, Winfield says, okay, let's get in character. Mm-hmm. And so it's like putting, it, it's like this capacity to be cool while doing violence as a mask that he can put on and he can play the role effortlessly. Whereas Vega is trying hard and not always pulling it off. But then the master, it seems, is Winston Wolf, who, mm-hmm. who, who's the better to both of them. Absolutely. No, I, I think you're exactly right. Even in that scene with Brett, um, Jules is very much kind of running that that kind of interaction while Vincent is kind of in the background smoking a cigarette, I think, in the kitchen. So, yeah, yeah I, I think you're spot on. And then at the opposite end of the spectrum, we have Brett, who is just the epitome of lack of honor, cowardly and weak. Yes, quite a... Uh, a very intentional kind of comparison uh, or contrast in that scene between um, Jules and Brett, for sure. Yeah, yeah, where he can't even, uh, right, he he can't speak. Uh, yeah, kind of, gives I him mean, his food, mm-hmm. and, and Jules drinks his entire Sprite, and uh, yeah, absolutely. And Brett, if I'm if I'm perceiving this correctly, one thing I thought is interesting is that the the men, the other men, seem kind of young, but the main characters. It's interesting that Tarantino cast like Travolta and um, and like people who, in a way, I think at the time were a little like past their prime, yep. kind of. But then mm-hmm. they're cast, and then this like brought them back up mm-hmm. by being in the film. But even within the film, it's interesting because there are clearly some younger people, mm-hmm. and they're but they're still struggling as kind of at the ages that they're at. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. What do you what do you think about that casting choice, Michael? Was that supposed to represent something? deeper i don't know i mean i 
Yeah, I don't know what the what the motivation was, but I do think that the age is a striking striking contrast. Um but yeah, I'm not sure what to make of it beyond that, although it certainly was it it revived Travolta's career. Um and but yeah, yeah, I don't I regret that I don't have an interesting insight there, unfortunately. Well, I didn't have one, which is why I was <laughs> asking you, so no worries about that. I just, uh, it's it seemed a little unusual or different than typically how movies are cast, and Tarantino seems to have some intentional way of doing everything, so I'll have to look that up and see if he's interviewed about that. No, but you're, I mean, you're right, all of the, so the, the youngest characters are definitely marginal, uh, the, um, with the exception, I think, of... Uma Thurman, but the the male characters, Eric Stoltz, uh, Bruce Willis, Travolta, Jackson, uh, and certainly um, uh, Harvey Keitel, they're all all a bit older. Um, I don't know if if Tarantino is trying to give some of us men hope that uh, we, we won't be completely over the hill when we hit our 40s and our 50s, uh, but I'm not sure. Um, oh, sorry, what were you going to say? I was going to say one other thing in that scene with Brett that reminded me of the conception of traditional masculinity ideology since one of the uh, defining features, turn back and get their terms, uh, anti-femininity. When Jules Winfield is asking Brett what what Marcellus Wallace looks like, he asks him, does he look like a bitch? And so it's clearly like that. That's that's that was the one place in the film I saw where there was an explicit invocation of this idea that men are not women and are not to be treated uh, like women. Um, again, no great insight there. It's just I, when I, when I was watching the film, I was just looking for places where I saw uh, the uh, the guidelines uh, uh, popping up, and that there was clearly an instance there where. Uh, Jules is projecting onto Marcellus Wallace this anti-femininity mandate. Yeah, I I think that's, you're right, it's explicit there. And I also wondered a little bit about that when it gets towards closer to the, the end of the movie when Wallace is sexually assaulted and um, he and Butch, which we'll t- definitely have to talk about Butch in a moment, but um, he they're on really bad terms, understandably, but Trying Butch, to kill each other. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then Butch goes back to save Wallace, and he says, are we cool? And Wallace says two things. One is, you know, you're basically you get out of here. But two, you never tell anyone what ha- just happened to me. Yeah. And I wondered about that, too. I mean, certainly. Oh, and, that, and just, and just mm-hmm. to jump in, in, mm-hmm. that, in that scene with Brett, uh, I'm sure lots of viewers have noticed this, but I just noticed it for the first time uh, in that exchange. Um, the eventual rape scene is foreshadowed because after um, uh, getting Brett to concede that Marcellus Wallace does not look like a bitch, um, Jules Winfield says, uh, "Why then why'd you try to fuck him like a bitch? Uh, Marcellus Wallace doesn't like to be fucked by anybody except Mrs. Wallace. And so I see that as an explicit foreshadow of that later scene. Yeah, I did not catch that until you just pointed that out. Yeah, abs- absolutely. And so kind of it that thread goes all the way through. Um, and with Wallace, 
right? The whole foot massage thing is premised on did he overreact to someone he perceived as disrespecting him yeah. by giving his wife a foot massage, which she denied happened anyway. But even if so, you know, and that's where the whole conversation ends up going is that this idea that it's, it's not just disrespectful. It's so disrespectful that he's going to respond with pretty severe violence yeah. towards that person. So I came across this really interesting fan theory. Uh, that was one of these pages with uh, theories about some of the story elements. So what's in the briefcase, for example. And so, you know, there are theories that it's Marcellus Wallace's soul. Some people say it's Brett's soul. But uh, one of these pages said that actually... Um, Tony Rocky Hard did not give Marcellus Wallace's, uh, did not give Mia Wallace uh, a foot massage. Rather, the theory was that uh, Tony Rocky Hoare uh, made a pass at Marcellus Wallace hmm. and that that was what provoked uh, the reaction. And, 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 and some theories, again, these are, I've heard no corroboration of, of any of this by Tarantino. But at least one other theory implied that Mia Wallace is a virgin, theirs is a sexless marriage, and the theory seemed to question uh, Marcellus Wallace's uh, security and his heterosexuality, and that that was why he responded so violently to this uh, um, advance from Tony Rocky Horror, which there's no corroboration I've seen for this, but it's a, it's a wacky theory. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, there it's I had heard the briefcase theory, but not that one. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's that it, if that's true, you can kind of see maybe certain reflections of that, right, where he's asserting his um, his manhood in certain ways through through violence, which mm -hmm. is what is one of the things that's mentioned in the guidelines, right, mm -hmm. that can be uh, well, it can be damaging in certain situations. Yeah. Whereas I think that that Butch represents, okay, so first of all, he, um, well, there's a lot of stuff going on, but ultimately his ability to, his bravery, his adventure, whatever it is that brings him back to enact violence and save Wallace and get himself out of there, I think that that's seen as heroic, right? And he mm -hmm. kind of rides off into the sunset with his, girlfriend and Zed's chopper, not a motorcycle or whatever it is. <laughs> and, and so that's interesting because of all the characters. I mean, he's not, he's not a great guy, right? He accidentally killed someone and he didn't care about that. Yep. Um, but ultimately something brings him back. And I think that that could be an example. I don't know what the motivations are, but an example of him doing something that is heroic and positive and, having a different outcome than most of the other characters, frankly. No, I, again, I, I, I found myself probably because I read, because of how recently I read Summer's book on honor. When I watched the film last night, I was watching it through the lens of honor and I found myself viewing Butch for all his shortcomings as the most, honorable character or at least male character in the film and and that heroic gesture and, and that's the word i would use where he's scot-free he can just leave the pawn shop get on the chopper get on grace and go 
but he can't leave Marcellus to what will surely be uh, his death once once they're finished with him. And so he goes back down, even though he doesn't have to. Uh, and I, I see that as uh, it's an it's an example of the kind of courage that Summers is saying can arise uh, in honor culture. Yeah, and it's such a it's one of the only positive things that happens out of all of the terrible things that happens, and it stands out. And I appreciated that point of the movie when it got to that, and even he the way he responds to his girlfriend having not brought the watch. Yeah. Um, is obviously there are some uh, problems with his response. But if we look, is there a kernel of uh, positivity in there? The loyalty to his father and to that's Christian. right. I mean, the, the whole watch story is, is very bizarre anyway. But nonetheless, he's clearly attached to it. Mm-hmm. And it is a story of um, tradition, I'll say. Mm-hmm. Um, no, and again, and that was another example of what led me to view him as the most honorable character in the film, for better and for worse. I mean, in that watch episode, we see he's taking a really foolish uh, risk from a certain perspective, certainly from the perspective of dignity culture. There's no reason to go back knowing that men are lying in wait to kill you in all likelihood just to get a watch. But as you noted, it's not just a watch to him. It's a symbol of familial loyalty and tradition. And he's willing to take that risk because of that. That's honor. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, too, circling back to the age component, if part of that Butch's storyline is a little bit of the age part, too, where if I'm, and I don't remember the exact dialogue, but when he first enters the film, he's having this discussion with Wallace about he's kind of an old-timer. and he, Yeah, the, the boxing doesn't have an old-timer's yeah. leg is this great line from Marcellus. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, and then he goes on to have this very redemptive, heroic arc, arc despite uh, him being told that he's kind of washed up. So I wonder if uh, Tarantino is trying to tell men, look, it's you'll be okay. Like old timers, you can play too and still, still have your adventure. I don't know. I, I'm curious about that now. I, I As I approach 50, I, I like that reading of, of the film. Sure. <laughs> There's adventure still. I like it. And honor. And mm-hmm. honor. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, to go back in to save a man who he very nearly shot in the head just, you know, moments prior. I mean, that. There's some honor in that, you know, yeah. into that. So absolutely. And, and to, just the way it's filmed, how he pauses and you, you know, mm-hmm. just, it's just so well done. Yeah. No, he's literally at the door. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and, and, back, and, oh, and, and and the weapon that he uses, yeah. not, not the hammer, yeah. not the, the chainsaw, but the, the katana, the, this, <laughs> yes. this, this ritual uh, Japanese sword. And just uh, when uh, he, um, ah, man. Even just his swordsmanship is sort of has a, a flash here, kind of yeah. a, an air to it with kind of the backward stab yes. without even looking. So there is a lot of kind of drama in that, too, and, and heroism or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. But before we're out of time, I know we've been I know we've talked about masculinity, but can we talk about some of the women in the film? I would love to. Let's do that. So Fabian. What what do you think of Fabian as a character? That's Butch's. That's Butch's girlfriend. partner, wife. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if we get uh, explicit information about uh, the whether they're married or not. But yeah, you know she's interesting because in some ways she 
asserts herself, like yeah. sexually asserts herself, mm-hmm. right? That was kind of a classic line at the time. Um, but then you can see she becomes very apologetic and frozen in a way when he's upset about the watch. And even when he's, they're talking about her belly, she's kind of pushing back on that too. I mean, it's a playful exchange at that point. So she's, she's interesting. She's not kind of a one note completely, you know, she stands up for herself, but she also seems legitimately afraid about the watch and Mm -hmm. really regretful. What did you think about her? So, so Fabian and Mia are both interesting characters. And until this moment, I hadn't realized this, but I see similarity in their arcs in that each of them is self-assured in our initial interactions with them. So at uh, Jackrabbit Slim's, Vincent Vega is not the one in charge in that conversation. Mia Wallace is in charge. Uh, and she just exudes self-confidence throughout the entire exchange. When she goes to the bathroom to powder her nose, she's the only one who's unconcerned with her physical appearance. She's there for her pleasure. And similarly, uh, Fabienne has that great line where um, Butch has asked, what would people think if you have a pot belly? What, what Will men find it attractive? And she says, why do I care what men find attractive? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's this initial period of, of self-assuredness, but then there's this turning point, this critical event past which that crumbles. With Mia, if you look at when – I, when I read her body language after the adrenaline shot, she's much more subdued, much less the, – the swagger is gone was what I had in my notes. And likewise, as you noted, when Butch throws the TV across the room – Fabian crumples into the corner. And so I I don't know what, at least in this film, that's saying about uh, Tarantino's portrayal of women. Um, But it's interesting that at least I see, uh, and and please tell me if you disagree with, uh, if you read it differently, but I see Fabian and Mia as both having similar arcs that go from self-assuredness to a loss of confidence after some critical incident. Yeah, I did not, I until you said that, I didn't see that, but you're absolutely right. I think that with Mia, they're talking about, we're not going to talk about this, and she's like, I would be in a, or more trouble than you would be. And so you do see a little bit of this, she's kind of doing her thing, and she's saying, like, look, I'm the one in charge here. But then after that happens, she's like, you know... Um, basically out of fear she's just like you know i'm we he can't know about this basically yeah. and then she she tells her her pilot joke catch up <laughs> and she knows it's not funny but it's kind of like a parting like thing where it seems to me a little bit well even apologetic like you know that i really uh, freaked you out and you were afraid so let me make up for it in some way kind of thing and then it's such an endearing end of the scene where vincent vega this hothead, this tough guy, when she can't see him anymore, he blows her a kiss. Yes, yes. They're, that whole, their interactions, I think that's probably my favorite part of the movie. Absolutely. Yeah, it's up there. I mean, for me, it's, it's, it's the interaction between Fabian and Butch when he comes home from the fight. But, mm-hmm. yeah, they're both great scenes. Oh, that's good, too. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed this discussion. Any last things we should talk about before we wrap up? Um, no, I would just, as I said, I would recommend that if people are going to read the guidelines, and I think they should, but they should read with an open mind, 
I also recommend that they read Tamler Summers' book, Why Honor Matters. I think that it's a, a nice uh, companion. That's great advice. We'll make sure to link to Tatter in the show notes. Where can people follow you, for example, on Twitter and keep up with all the work you're doing? So on Twitter, the handle is at Tatter underscore rags. Okay, great. I highly recommend, as I said, following uh, Michael. And thank you so much again for attending. This was just a fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed hearing your thoughts on this. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Jedi Council Podcast, a member of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. You can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com. If you would like to support the Jedi Council Podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Jedi Council. The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Additionally, this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.